welcome to church, everybody. I just wanted to extend uh, my welcome, add my welcome to Jess's. My name is Dom. I'm one of the pastors of Southwest Evangelical Church. Uh, we're one congregation of a few. Uh, the other congregations meet in our Kingsgrove location, and so we're really excited that you're here, particularly if you're new and you're checking out the Christian faith. It's a new year. You thought, maybe it's great to come to church and see what it's all about. If that's you, uh, a warm, warm welcome to you. Um, we're in the middle of our summer series. Uh, You'll see the graphic on the screen, head, heart, and hands. And we've been considering together what it means for all of our beings, our head, our heart, our hands, uh, to be involved in the work of spreading the good news of Jesus to those around us. And this series hasn't just been on Sundays. Uh, We've had workshops as well uh, the last couple of weeks on Wednesday to explore this morning. And for those of you who've, able, who've been able to come uh, to some of the workshops, uh, I hope that's been a great blessing for you. It has been for me. If you haven't been to one yet, or um, get, one, get it into your diary, just mention it. The 23rd is our final one, and it's going to be really, really good. So today we are in the middle, at the center, looking at heart. Um, and, and more specifically, we're looking at moving, moving our hearts towards the lost. And to help with that, we're going to look, as we just read, uh, from the book of Jonah, an Old Testament messenger or prophet. Now, you might be going, that's that's a bit of an odd book to be looking at a topic like this, but I hope you'll soon see that it is quite relevant. And so just to give us a bit of a roadmap of our time together today, we're going to spend a fair bit of time um, unpacking this account, having a closer look at this account, before um, uh, we finish by considering what we learn from this and what this means for us. So that's our roadmap ahead. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father God, as we sung uh, just earlier, we want to come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Would you take the truth that you've revealed, would you plant it deep in us, and would you shape and fashion us in your likeness? Father, we thank you that your word has the power to do that. And uh, we believe that firmly today, and even now, as we sit in really comfy seats and aircon, Father, we pray that you would be speaking to us so clearly. Help me to uh, uh, not be a distraction in any way. Um, Father, would the words of my mouth um, and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you. And so be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Fantastic. Well, uh, we're going to be spending some time, like I said, in the book of Jonah. And so we're going to begin from the beginning of our reading. Uh, Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 begins with what seems to be like the conclusion of the book. Right? The whole book really has been anticipating this very point. You see, right at the beginning of the book of Jonah, God speaks to Jonah and he tells him to Go. God tells Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. In other words, the whole book was set up because Jonah was to preach against this great city. And so as we come to our reading today, while it's taken some time and there's been a bit of a detour to get to this point, we're finally here and Jonah has done just that. He has gone to the city, he's preached against it. Earlier in chapter 3, he marches into the city and he declares 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. And what's the result? What's the result of this declaring? Well, if you're, don't worry about looking at it, and maybe some of you are familiar with the account of Jonah. 
you'll know that the phenomenal takes place. The phenomenal takes place. The beginning of a revival actually takes place. The entire city of Nineveh repents. From the greatest to the least, from the king to the servants, the entire spectrum of society repent. And we see the beginning of a mark of a revival. Now, this is huge. Now, there have been books written about some of the revivals that have happened through the history of our world. And I reckon none of them compare with what happened in the city of Nineveh that day. The entire city, every last person on their knees asking God and seeking Him. So this is huge as it is. But I think it gets even bigger when we understand what the city of Nineveh was like. Because the book of Jonah paints a pretty G-rated version of the city for us. And so just to give you a bit of an idea, Nineveh, Nineveh was the capital city of the ancient superpower Assyria. Assyria, at the height of its powers, was one of the cruelest, one one of the most violent empires of ancient times. Their kings would often record and pridefully display the results of their acts of evil and brutality in inscriptions with graphic detail. It was fairly common, for example, for the Assyrians to typically cut off the legs and one arm of their defeated enemy, leaving the other arm and hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. It was also fairly common to force the friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. They would pull out prisoners' tongues and stretch their bodies out with ropes, right? They invented this, not the Romans, so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. There are are, um, statues, there are paintings of impalings of up to eight heads on a stake. And I'm going to stop there, right, because it's getting very graphic, but you get the point. Assyria, the superpower, was infamous for their torture, cruelty, and extreme amounts of violence. See, they wouldn't just win battles, they wouldn't win wars, they would crush everybody in their path. And so we look at the city of Nineveh, the capital city. And like any capital city, would have embodied the culture of the nation to its fullest. Which means, the evil, the pride, that Assyria, the nation, was infamous for, Nineveh embodied fully. The torture, the violence, the brutality, Nineveh embodied fully. And so I'm hoping that you're beginning to understand just how extra phenomenal this repentance is. Because we see in chapter 3, the king enforces, right? He enforces a citywide fast from food and drink. He takes off his royal robes, he puts on sackcloth instead, a physical gesture symbolizing a removal of all status before God. And the king says to all the people, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The capital city of the nation known to be the most violent, the most brutal, the most evil, is told by their king to give up their evil ways and their violence. This is shocking. And so coming back to the beginning of our reading today, God sees what has happened in this city. He sees the incredible and genuine act of sorrow from the citizens right up to the king. And in his mercy, he relents from his threat to destroy the city. And so you imagine this would be a fantastic way to end this book, right? 
You've got the prophet going to this foreign land. He preaches a really uh, powerful message, apparently, and the entire city turns, and we see the beginning of a revival. This would be a fantastic, triumphant way to end the book. But yet, as we heard from our reading, we're not at the end. There's a whole other chapter to go. Why? Because Jonah's response is not what we might expect it to be. It's not what we might expect it to be. Have a look at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4. Read with me. Verse 1. But to Jonah, what just happened, this miraculous repentance, citywide revival, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. Now, I don't know if you get, do you get, what's, do you get Jonah's reaction? Because I almost don't. I, I almost don't get what's happening. You, you have one message to an entire city and they fall on their knees. This is Billy Graham stuff, plus more. And more than that, we've already talked about how tough this audience is. The Ninevites, they're tough. And Jonah would have been an outsider. Right? Everybody knew, knew he was an outsider. He would walk into the middle of the city. He would declare an offensive message saying that their city is going to get wiped. And yet you see repentance at a wide scale. This is exciting stuff. Imagine if we saw this in Bankstown. Imagine if we saw this in Sydney. Imagine if, we, if Kerry and Heidi saw this wherever they land. This is exciting stuff. More than that, Jonah is the one who preaches the message. He's the messenger that God chooses to use to bring this repentance about. I mean, how stoked would you be if you were the one that God chooses to use? As someone who gets to do this preaching thing from time to time, if I got to see anything remotely, a percentage of this happen after one of my messages, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be jumping. Right? This is the stuff of dreams. But what's Jonah's response? It's nothing like what we expect it to be. We read that he became angry. Now, if you do a literal translation of verse 1, it would read something like this. And it, God's mercy, God's mercy was evil to Jonah. A great evil. And he burned with anger. See, Jonah sees what God has done. Relenting in judgment. Showing mercy. And Jonah thinks of God's actions as a tremendous great evil. We've just talked about how graphic, how torturous, how, how brutal, how evil Nineveh is, and yet nowhere in the book of Jonah is, are they described as a great evil. The only thing that's described as a great evil is what Jonah perceives of what God has just done. Inconceivable, almost. One preacher said this, um, Do artists get angry when a prominent museum accepts their art for an installation? Do musicians get angry when they're given a standing ovation at Carnegie Hall? Why then, Jonah, who has just reached, who has just preached, sorry, to the toughest audience of his life, and they've responded positively down to the last person, would he melt down in furious rage? That's the obvious question, isn't it? Why is Jonah as angry as he is? Now, an important thing, thing to realize, to get this answer as to why, is to remember that this isn't actually the first time Jonah has been angry in the book. Jonah refers back to the first time he's been angry, actually, and what he says next. Have a look from verse 2. Read with me. He prayed to the Lord. Jonah prayed to the Lord, and he said, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
See, last time Jonah was angry, he was pretty passive-aggressive about it. He didn't confront God. Instead, if you're familiar with the account again, he went to a port in Joppa. He hopped on a boat. He set sail for Tarshish. And that's what he's talking about when he's saying he's forestalled by fleeing. Um, I've, got a, I've got a graphic here of a map. Hopefully you can see where Nineveh is. That's to your right. right? This is where Jonah was commissioned, called by God to go. You see where the port Joppa is, just slightly down and left from there. And you see right to the left the possible location of Tarshish, most likely. We don't know exactly because it's an ancient city, but scholars' best bet, that's where Tarshish is. Now, regardless of where exactly it is, we, we, we read elsewhere in the Bible that the trip from Tarshish to Israel, where Jonah is, by boat, would be about three years. Three years on a boat. You can look it up in 2 Chronicles 9 if you're interested. But imagine this is, this is what Jonah's thinking. Uh, probably. God, I'm angry. I'm so angry that I'm going, to com- going, I'm going to go the complete opposite way. You want me to go that way? I'm going the other way. And you know what? I'm willing to take three years out of my life to be on a boat. Now, that, that's, there's nothing worse to me than spending three years on a boat. Some of you, I know somebody just went on a cruise recently, and they were, this is no cruise, right? Three years on a boat just to avoid doing what you want me to do? This is the ultimate passive-aggressive response, Right? But here, in chapter 4, Jonah's done being passive-aggressive. He's pretty much trying to square up now directly against God and give him a piece of his mind. See, why was it that he fled to Tarshish to begin with? Why does he tell God his life is no longer worth living? Is he just being dramatic? Well, to understand this, I reckon we have to find out a little bit more about Jonah. See, we, we first meet Jonah not in the book of Jonah, but we meet him elsewhere in the book of Two Kings. I'll read from uh, chapter 14, verse 25, but really there's a few verses that capture it. But I'll read verse 25, and it's going to be on the screen behind me if you want to follow. Um, He, Jeroboam, was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohemath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet. Now, I know it's a bit crazy with all those names and all those locations and history, but this passage in 2 Kings help us understand just who Jonah is. See, basically, Jonah was a prophet, a messenger from God during a time in Israel's history when the country had split into two kingdoms. Right? There was a southern kingdom, there was a northern kingdom, uh, and the southern kingdom was called Judah, and the northern kingdom was confusingly uh, called Israel. And there's a certain king, when Jonah is a prophet, King Jeroboam II, in the northern kingdom, who because of a prophecy that he receives from Jonah, he then goes and beefs up and extends the long section of Israel's northern border. Right? Now, why does he do that? Why is he strengthening the northern border? Well, because there's a looming superpower to the north, Assyria, which we've just established Nineveh was the capital city of. Now, just to give you an idea how far um, the border extended to, it actually ended up getting close to rivaling the borders of Israel's golden years, when Israel was a superpower in the region. 
We just read from 1 Chronicles earlier in the, in the, early in the service, right? When King Solomon was king, that was the peak of Israel's powers. And now the land size almost matches that. Now, if you're an Israelite, if you're King Jeroboam II, this is huge stuff. Israel is now looking like the Israel of old. Why? Because of the prophecy that Jonah has given to them. See, Jonah delivers this incredible news. The nation is struggling. It's suffering. And Jonah walks in like a knight in shining armor. He's got this fantastic news on behalf of God that they have his blessing to extend and grow their nation in spite of that looming superpower to the north. And not only did he say it, it actually happened. Right? This was a true prophet of God. What he said came to pass, and Israel was protected for that time being. And so why does this make sense of our passage today? Why does this make sense of why Jonah was so angry towards God in the face of such an amazing and supernatural repentance? The reason is this. It's because the Ninevites were his enemies. The Ninevites are Israel's enemies. See, church, God's first message to Jonah as a prophet was an instruction to protect Israel from the very same people now that God is telling him to preach to. Jonah wants no part of that. Jonah doesn't want these guys spared. He wants their destruction. He doesn't want them to be spared by his God, most of all. They are Israel's enemies, who actually later on in history wipe out the entire northern kingdom, so his fears are justified. For, For Jonah to walk, to even walk into Nineveh, the heart of the city, and preach against it would have been equivalent to, I think, a Jew walking into the heart of Berlin, Germany, in the middle of World War II, and to preach against them. This is insanity. And for Jonah, for God to pardon Israel's enemies was unfathomable. And so I hope you see a little bit about where Jonah's coming from, where Jonah's mind is at. This doesn't make sense to him. So how does God respond? How does God respond to Jonah? How does God respond to his anger? Having heard his cry, he responds to him in verses 4 to 9. Read with me again from verses 4. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? So quickly, what's happened? What's happened here? Jonah's moved out of the city. He's headed east towards an area where he will see what will happen to Nineveh, presumably because he hopes that God would somehow change his mind. that God would still overthrow this city as he said he would. And so he puts together this makeshift shelter, he sits in it, and he waits. So how does God respond? Well, he gives Jonah a bit of an object lesson. Now, I have no idea why I think of this, but if you've ever watched the movie Bend It Like Beckham, there's a scene where the father teaches the mum the game of soccer using salt and pepper shakers, like using that as an object lesson. I always think, I don't know why, but anyway, God gives Jonah an object lesson. He provides a leafy sort of plant for Jonah. And this plant does what his makeshift shelter can't. It's hot, it's an arid climate that Jonah's in, 
And so he provides this leaf, the plant provides the proper shade and comfort that he needs. And so he's pretty stoked, quite naturally, right? This plant's grown up overnight, it's given him what he needs. But at dawn, the plant's no more. A worm has eaten it. Now, notice when. When did the worm eat the plant? At dawn. Before the sun rose. And so by the time the sun is at its peak, with its heat, and now there's a scorching wind on top of it, Jonah is left with his makeshift shelter, and no wonder he grows lightheaded and faint. And so we see him get angry again at God. Now, why does God go through all this trouble? Why does God send this leafy plant? What's, what's the go? What's the, what's the game? I want to suggest to you it's this. I think that the object lesson is to show Jonah that he is more similar to the Ninevites than he would like to think. That's the object. That's the lesson. That he is more similar to the Ninevites than he would like to think. How? Well, God provides a situation with his plant that has some similarities with what the Ninevites have just gone through. Right? Um, see, from this object lesson, both Jonah and Nineveh have had impending calamities. Right? For Jonah, it was the discomfort of the heat. For Nineveh, it was the threat of destruction. Now, I know they're not, really com- not, not very comparable, but um, the, writer, the writer of Jonah actually uses the same word to describe the discomfort and the destruction. Right? And so they're meant to be tied together. They both experience impending calamities. Both Jonah and Nineveh try to protect themselves from their calamities. Right? Jonah, he tries to do what? He builds a makeshift shelter. What does Nineveh do? Well, they try to protect themselves by apologizing to God and fasting. In both cases, Jonah and Nineveh, God acts mercifully against this calamity. Right? God sends a plant. For Nineveh, God relents from destroying them. But the situation isn't just similar. There are some significant differences because the object lesson from Jonah goes one step further, doesn't it? See, while God continues to relent from destroying the Ninevites, God takes away the plant. You see, God does to Jonah what Jonah wishes he would do to Nineveh. You get that? God does to Jonah what Jonah wishes he would do to Nineveh. See, Jonah wants Nineveh destroyed. So what does God do in this lesson? Instead of providing mercy from the heat, he lets this discomfort return in full force. In other words, when the worm eats the plant and Jonah is again experiencing discomfort, God is giving Jonah the tiniest of samples of what it would be like if Nineveh experienced the destruction of God as Jonah hoped. What's God doing? God is showing Jonah what it looks like when he stops being merciful and he only acts justly. That's what he's doing. That's what God is basically saying to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, if I acted justly to you according to everything you've done, I shouldn't act mercifully to you either. Just to show you what what I mean, I'm going to bring this plant, I'm going to give it to you mercifully from this heat, and then I'm going to take it away. That's an illustration of what you deserve. You want Nineveh to be destroyed. You want what is just. Here's the problem, Jonah. It's not only the Ninevites that deserve my judgment. You do too. See, church, the book of Jonah is much more about the rebellion of Jonah than it is about the rebellion of the Ninevites. In chapter 1, we see Jonah run. He runs the opposite way like we saw in that map. He nearly kills the lives of innocent sailors on the boat. 
In chapter 2, he sings a song to God, but at no point in the song does he acknowledge or say sorry to God. In chapter 3, he speaks a message with so little content. It's, it's, it's so few words. One has to wonder whether Jonah even wants to be in Nineveh. And we've just heard in chapter 4, the reason, the reason is he, he wanted God to destroy Nineveh. Not relent. And so Jonah rebels. He's shown mercy. He continues to rebel. He is again shown mercy. And when we read Jonah, it's Jonah that deserves the judgment just as much as Nineveh does. And so that's God's point. We reach the end of the book, and God asks Jonah a rhetorical question in verses 10 to 11. The Lord said in verse 10, You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Don't miss this, right? God's saying, Jonah, if you're angry with me from removing a plant that came and went in one night, now you're beginning to understand a little bit about the way I see things. Can't you see, Jonah, that you wanting me to destroy Nineveh, or even though they're genuinely sorrowful, is a bit like destroying your plant. Only now it's not just one plant. It's 120,000 men, women, and children, including animals. Jonah, you're my prophet, God is saying. You should want me to show mercy to Nineveh, and yet you want your plant way more than that. Do you see my heart? And that's how the book ends. And so as we turn to what do we learn from an account such as this, that same rhetorical question that God asked of Jonah, do you see my heart? It's turned to us. Church, do we see God's heart for the lost? Because if there's anything to learn from the last chapter from the book of Jonah, it's this. That God's heart for the lost will trouble our hearts for the lost. God's heart for the lost will trouble our hearts for the lost. See, for Jonah, God's heart for the lost extended to those he wished it didn't. He didn't see the Ninevites as lost people needing to be saved. He saw them only as enemies. In Jonah's eyes, God's heart for the Ninevites and willingness to relent, it, as we saw in verse 1, seemed very wrong. And so what does that mean for us then? That means when we pray prayers asking God that we'd have a heart for the lost, when we pray prayers that we'd grow in desire for others to know God, like some of the ones we prayed this last Wednesday at the workshop, you have to realize these prayers are unbelievably bold unbelievably bold. They're bold because I think prayers like that do at least two things. Firstly, it gradually changes our sight. And then secondly, it gradually changes our willingness. See, praying for these things means that we are also praying that God would grow in us a desire to have the eyes that will see the lost as He does. To move towards the lost like He does. And you know what that includes then? That includes seeing our enemies as those who need the mercy and grace of God. It gradually changes your sight. But as we grow to see our enemies need the mercy and grace of God, we're gradually growing willingness to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. This isn't something for somebody else to do. By praying a prayer like this regularly will grow your willingness to speak with them. Make no mistake, this is a bold prayer. Now I can only guess... But I reckon if Jonah prayed prayers like this every single day, 
I can only imagine he would have shown infinitely more compassion to the Ninevites than what we saw in our account today. Now, you might be going, well, hang on, hang on, Dom. Like, I'm not like Jonah. I don't have enemies. I haven't had a sworn enemy since I was in primary school when I decided that the guy who called me names would be my sworn arch nemesis forever. I don't have any enemies. There's no one I'm aware of that would want me dead. There's nobody I want dead. There's nobody I'm at war with. I don't have enemies, Dom. Now, if that's you, I want to suggest that that's perhaps not quite true. Maybe what we should actually do to get a better sense of our enemies is to kind of go back with that question a little bit. Rather than ask, who is my enemy? It might be better to ask, who do I find difficult to love? Who do I find difficult to love? Because I imagine if Jonah were to answer, who do I find difficult to love? The Ninevites would be at the top of his list. See, we don't have to be patriots to the extent Jonah is, or to be at war with enemies, to have enemies, rather. Because if I answer honestly the question of who I struggle to love, who I find difficult to love, it's quite likely that they're the ones at least I treat as enemies. Now, Southwest, I don't know about you, but while I find it difficult to kind of answer the question, who are my enemies? Unfortunately and sadly, I find it pretty easy to answer, who do I struggle to love? Who do I find difficult to love? That's pretty easy. Who is it that I find difficult to love? Well, I think the answer to that, to that question at a basic level, is whoever threatens us. Whoever can threaten us. Whoever can threaten our welfare. Perhaps our reputation. Those at a basic level threaten to stop us getting what I want, getting what we want, and challenge our well-being. Maybe for you, the answer is a group within society. They're the ones that I find difficult to love, a particular group in society. Perhaps those that are difficult to love are maybe of a political preference. Maybe it's a sexual preference. Maybe it's a racial background. Maybe it's those of another religion, or maybe even a non-religion. Maybe they're those we find difficult to love. See, when we pray for God to have a heart like His, to create in us desires like His, for you this will include desiring to see that group, that group within society saved, and also being willing to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. Right? But maybe for you the answer is more individual. Maybe for you there are specific people that you have in mind when, when you're asked the question, who do I find difficult to love? Perhaps it's a colleague that has talked behind your back. Maybe a relative that ridicules your faith. Maybe a friend that has betrayed your trust. Maybe it's another parent that judges you for the way you raise your kids. When we pray for God to have a heart like His, to create desires like His, for you, this will include desiring to see them saved and also being a willing to play a part in declaring the good news of Jesus to them. Friends, God's heart for the lost will likely trouble our hearts for the lost. Praying for hearts like God towards lost, that's a bold prayer. And so the natural question to ask then is, should we stop? Should we give up on this 21 days prayer campaign? Should we give up praying what Johnson prayed earlier? Because it's troubling, it's, it's bold. Should we just stop? Well, the answer, of course, is absolutely not. You see, church, while... God sent a leafy plant to Jonah 
to show him that he was just as lost and in need of mercy as the Ninevites were, God has done for us something far greater. God has sent his son to show us that we are just as lost and in need of mercy. Why we were enemies to God. The Apostle Paul writes famously, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, God, Christ died for us. Which means that while we were enemies, Christ died. While we were difficult to love, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love extravagantly, lavishly. He sent his son to die for us even when we were opposed to him. And so if you're visiting church today, if you're checking out Christianity, if you're returning back and you're going, oh, maybe this is a good time to come back. I want to say a lot of this message has kind of been to the family of believers. But I hope it's been interesting for you to maybe explore a little bit of the Bible, maybe even surprising what it says about a prophet, right? somebody that we might hold in high esteem. It says pretty terrible things. Maybe that surprises you. But I think it's even more important for you to know that God has spared no expense to demonstrate his love for you. If you'd like to find out more, if you have any questions, keep coming. Speak to the person who brought you. Speak with me. I'd love to. But especially come back in February, right? Um, just hinted at uh, a mission month. Um, forget that, that those terms. But basically, we have four weeks coming up in February where um, we've surveyed um, nearly 200 people. Right? We've kind of gone out with a survey. We've asked them, if you have a question for God, what, what would it be? Um, 200 different responses, um, all from people who are not churched and, don't, and wouldn't call themselves a Christian. And we've taken the top four responses and we've made that our aim in February to deal with each one of them. So come back. I think it would be great. But back to those who are Jesus followers for just a moment. The only way to truly see those who we find difficult to love, our enemies, the way God does, is to remember that we too were enemies of God. Who didn't deserve mercy, but yet have been shown it anyway. And it is only when we dwell on that, when we pray about that, when we let that truth sink deeply to the core of who we are, can we begin to overflow our hearts to those we find difficult to love, the way God does. Now, as we close, um, let me give you an example from history. Uh, back in January of 1907, a fair while ago now, a revival broke out, one of those revivals that I mentioned earlier, in a Bible conference in Pyongyang, now the capital of North Korea. Those attending the conference came under deep conviction because a particular preacher called them to repent of their traditional hatred of the Japanese. Now, these, these Koreans, they were Christian, right? They, they had accepted that they were saved by nothing they do. They knew they were loved, even though they were enemies of God. And yet, that same belief hadn't sunk deep enough for them to forgive the Japanese. In fact, their moral behavior as a Christian nation probably made them feel morally superior to the Japanese, who had been historically oppressive. And so in the light of the good news of Jesus, though, at this conference, these Koreans saw that they stood as equally sinful and condemned with all other human beings, yet rescued by the sheer and undeserved mercy of God in Christ. And so all their pride and all their bitterness were drained, and they returned home from the conference with a new willingness to repent of their wrongdoing. People went house to house, repairing relationships. There was mass repentance, mass conversion that took place. The church exploded. The Methodist church in one year, in one calendar year, doubled in membership. 
See, church, while we are certainly praying, as you've got those cards, right? We're praying for our friends. We're praying for our family. Absolutely. And we want them to encounter Jesus. But to pray for hearts of the lost means that God is moving our hearts towards even those we consider as enemies. Would you see them the way God sees them? And would you be willing to move when the opportunity arises? Let me pray. Father God, I ask, we ask boldly that you would create in us a pure heart. That you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. That you would grant us a willing spirit We thank you for the amazing, incredible mercy that you show to us. We thank you that uh, through your prophet Jonah, that you are willing to confront us on such a task. And so I pray that rather than everything we've heard make us shy away from praying, it would make us pray all the more because we want to be like you. Move us, we pray. Stir us, we pray. To love as you love. And to have hearts for the lost as you do. Even if it's difficult. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.